News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. It's Wednesday early evening. Another busy day and week in New York. The mayor has finally announced this plan to reopen schools, more or less, so the kids would be going into schools, depending on the school, maybe two or three days a week. Assuming, says the governor, that things don't change too much between now and September. So, hey, we will see. We've had a spate of shootings in New York. Last week, more than 100 people were shot for the first time since 1995. As the NYPD continues to put out somewhat absurd and and then rapidly disproven narratives about why that's happening, that it's uh, bail reform, nope. Numbers don't bear that out, that it's the people got released from Rikers. Nope, numbers don't bear that out, begging the question of what is actually happening. I was pretty surprised to hear those theories debunked in the New York Post today, actually. Well, that's when you know you've jumped the shark. And evictions. Court is sort of back open again. The CARES Act benefits are about to expire. More than a third of the city has not been paying its rent. Tenants are freaked out. Landlords are freaked out. The governor did not actually create any sort of grace period or protection for tenants, except to say that if it's COVID-related, you can't be evicted right now. But but what that means in practice is super unclear, and uh, the economy is still not really functioning. So We are in a period of great uncertainty just about what the city is going to look like, I think, in the uh, weeks and months and then years to come. The backdrop to all of this, beyond the uh, weak, semi-useless mayor we have, is, is that there's just not going to be money to go around. People are leaving the city. Not all of them are going to return. If Washington doesn't come through with money, the budget numbers simply don't come close to working out. You know, even Mayor de Blasio has done nothing but increase payroll, is at least talking about significant layoffs now. Cuomo, pretty obviously, if the state budget is short, is going to kick those expenses to the localities like New York City. And it's just a really racking period where it's not clear where we go from here, what the streets are going to feel like, what the schools are going to feel like, and what it's going to mean to live here, say, three months from now or a year from now or down the road. Um, Colleges, too, are all sort of holding their breath about what's going to happen next. So it's an interesting time to talk, but I I think the the theme of the moment is deep uncertainty. And weirdly, last thing I'll say is when we have plans, that doesn't really help. I like having plans to know what we're deviating from, but, but a nominal school opening plan now, and the mayor said a lot of bullshit today as he does. So he said, uh, hey, we know that 75% of students from the survey we did really want to come back, but also we don't know if our numbers hold up, even if all the infection things hold up and everything else does, because we're just going to ask all the parents now. They did a selective survey. And of course, if lots more parents want their kids in school or lots less do, everything changes. So we're, we're just at a moment where I think it's harder to look at the city and to have a sense of what we're going to be looking at a year from now than at any point, in, at least in my adult lifetime. Chrissy, what are you seeing? Well, I I mean, I agree with you 
I don't even think that we should be thinking a year out. You know, let's just focus on late August and what someone wants versus what is reality are two totally different things. I'm sure lots of parents want their kids out of the house. (laughs) They've been with them since March. (laughs) Most parents and children have ever spent together. But the fact of the matter remains, we've seen this with football teams going back to universities over the summer to practice, you know, rampant COVID infections the minute you get groups together. And this, this argument that, you know, oh, they're young and resilient. Well, I mean, last I checked, children aren't teaching themselves. They're adults in the classroom, leading the classroom. They're not making their own, you know, grilled cheese sandwiches at lunchtime. You've got lunch ladies and staff and janitors from all different parts of the city. So we're, we're creating a hotbed and putting children at risk, especially since we still don't know uh, the effects of COVID on kids. So I, I think it's too soon to say like we should go back when we just see our numbers going up because we have a president and a Republican party who refuse to pay attention to science and acknowledge the fact that we have a global pandemic. P.S. We just left the WHO, the World Health Organization, in the midst of a global, global pandemic. If that gives you any indication of where the president's mind is, uh, he, he, I don't think he cares about American uh, Americans, period, or people in America. Uh, I, I think he'll only care if it happens to him and anyone other than that. He just doesn't get it. So I I feel for parents who have made the choice to have children and now they don't want to spend time with them. Sure, I get it. We want them to have in-class, in-person education, but we can't do it. Like we have to have some sort of sacrifice to a certain extent. We might have to just have fall back at home. I know that it's going to be painful on so many levels, but you know, I know, and most Americans aren't used to being told what they can and cannot do. That's a whole nother backdrop of race and class, but we might have to have more painful months leading up, you know, in in the the next few months, because if not, this could be a never ending cycle. And so the only thing I'm certain about is the uncertainty, but I I think that planning to have children in classrooms, germy children in classrooms next month is August is absolutely insane. I mean, read a newspaper, anyone, if you think that this is a good idea. And as we're recording, Mike Mulgrew is on with our friends, Ben Max and Jared Murphy. Shout out to Max and Murphy podcast. Indeed. You know, and he has been very skeptical, the head of the teachers union here, about the idea of having in-class teaching in the fall. Notably, and this has been to me an interesting issue, is teachers unions generally have been very skeptical about synchronous learning, or as we used to call it, you know, teaching where you have, you have all these students in a class or even on Zoom and you're talking live to them, asking questions and getting responses and all that. And the contract here doesn't require that as a, the union has been very assertive in saying. So how this is actually going to function, what teachers are going to show up, you know, they have their own child care concerns, obviously. We finally just got from the Board of Health guidance for how child care can open daycare, right? For everyone in the city, we've had it for essential workers. And that seems like it's on a wing and a prayer too. Functionally, lots of places just had been open, regardless of what the city wanted. And that's the other backdrop is if there is a need to shut things back down again, as uh, the infection rates are going up almost everywhere except New York, it's not clear that people necessarily will just comply and do that a second time around. 
I mean, I think that's the worry because I think a lot of folks have a very low threshold now for this sheltering in place and compliance. But the, the problem is if we don't run through the tape and, and really make sure we get this under control, then this is going to be every semester that we have this conversation. I mean, we're having it at the university level, whether or not we're going to do asynchronous and synchronous learning and sometimes teach in person. But again, if we look at what other universities have already done with bringing just a few students to campus, mainly for sports, it's rampant. You know, are, how are you going to tell an 18 or 19 year old, don't gather with any of your friends? And I think a lot of, you know, I'm not begrudging an 18 or 19 year old, but of course, I'm sure a lot of people will say, well, it's only two or three of us getting together. But the thing is, we're not living in a vacuum. And this is how we'll just keep passing around the coronavirus. Some people will have minor cases. Some people sadly will be in the hospital or worse. Uh, others will be asymptomatic and, and spread it. So, I mean, lots of professors are freaking out about going back to teach in person. I honestly am not thinking about it at all because it's July. And I sadly know that by August, the, the conversation will run itself. So there's no need for me to lose sleep or hair over it. It's <laughs> as a social scientist, I read the paper and I think about if you don't have a vaccine, if you don't have leadership that understands uh, how quickly this virus is spreading, uh, if you don't have a citizenry that complies, and we know that you know groups of ten or more seem to be you know little petri dishes, I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna freak out about being in person teaching six kids because it's absolutely absurd and in, insane. But I understand that there are larger financial constraints that a lot of universities are thinking about. But we can't put money above morality and health and safety, period. I think that a lot of people's patients are also wearing thin and we can't trust that everyone's just going to shelter in place again. One of the reasons that that's happening is because of how we've seen the city manage things that are going to go hand in hand with the pandemic, like rent relief when all the restaurants have to shut down because of mandates like negotiating terms between tenants and landlords, landlords and larger landlords, larger landlords and banks. None of that has happened. We saw all through May and June an entire tidal wave of task force creation and not a one to deal with this problem that we'll have echoing, reverberating repercussions for this city. A couple months ago, I remember saying on this podcast that I had hope since we were looked like in the wake of the pandemic, we were starting a manufacturing hub in Sunset Park that rich people were going to now have to invest themselves in the healthcare and safety of domestic workers and service people and, um, uh, you know, so that they themselves wouldn't get sick. And you see almost the opposite happening, especially with these evictions. The law right now is so muddy. When the eviction moratorium expired last month, a tenant safe harbor law was signed by the governor, and it's vague. It doesn't protect everybody from eviction. The eviction guidelines are, are vague and just ripe to be argued arduously in what proves to be one of the most horrendous tidal wave of litigated eviction cases probably in the city history. I mean, 
I don't say that with complete confidence, but almost I do. I mean, except looking at maybe the Great Depression. So nobody knows quite what to do. Nobody knows if the COVID time for when you're allowed to be protected from evictions is over or not. City marshals aren't acting on evictions. But then you have some incidents like last night where tenants advocates groups are camped out in front of brownstones of people who are doing forced evictions. A couple, I think last name is Brooks Church, tried to forcibly evict some tenants. They also charge in their building like $785 on Airbnb. And a bunch of tenant advocates group camped out in front of their building. And now they're pretty much in every local paper that we have. So I think that the distrust in what the city and the state are willing to even do as far as like bringing not just protection, not just cancel rent, you know, not stupid slogans, but like anything that actually might help alleviate this issue, both de Blasio and Cuomo seem almost unwilling to even approach it. So I think we're going to see a lot more direct action as we saw that that moved the needle just a smidge when it came to police reform during the huge protests and riots all around the country after the George Floyd murder. See, Alex, what I think you just laid out to me, you know, going back to Harry's original question, which is people are trying to figure out, you know, this spike in crime and the spike in shootings and violence in the city. I'm like, you just laid out the argument for me. You know, we can't seem to figure out the root cause. And I'm like, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic. People are incredibly stressed out about their health and the health of their loved ones and their community members. They're incredibly stressed out about their finances and their job prospects if they have a job. And then they're incredibly stressed out about possibly getting evicted. Like that is a powder keg for me. So if someone, you know, doesn't have those stressors, you little slights can can sort of go go by the wayside. However, you add all of that tension we know all the data shows that that's when domestic violence goes up. That's when child abuse goes up, when people are financially stressed. And then you add in the possibility of being homeless and possibly losing a loved one or dying yourself because the government didn't have time to get their stuff together. Like, and it's senseless. And, you know, you may have already known someone who's died. So it's like, I don't subscribe to this whole, oh, it's because we changed the rules in Rikers. That's not it. It's not all of our police reforms that we've been pushing, it's everything else externally because we've seen police slowdowns before and we are just fine. We do not need randos from outside of the city carrying guns to check parking meters. We don't need police for half the things. This is like basically a patronage program that's just carried over from, you know, post-slavery and reconstruction. So we figured out that we don't need the $6 billion worth that we spend them. But yes, we are seeing an uptick in crime. It's also hot as all get out. And people are stressed out. So, I mean, like, this is what happens in the summer. So everyone's just like, you know, Bratton, Bratton, how dare you? Stop clutching your pearls, dude. Like, you had thousands <laughs> of murders under your belt. And this is also, you know, just as a as someone who leans to the left in politics, this is when I kind of knew de Blasio was full of it. First, first day on the job, you're going to bring in Bratton? Oh, okay. This is, like, supposed to be a new era. And you're going to bring in this guy who's talking about, A, stop fat shaming people with the fat lady singing. And then it's saying like, oh, oh my gosh, we're back to the battle days. I was like the battle days when you were in charge and you couldn't get it together. Like sit down. When just, they brought in a barge to Rikers Island to pretty much just house children in solitary confinement. Yeah. And P.S. Colored children. Right. 
Black and Latinx, because I always tell my students, I'm like, you know, you want to talk about the war on drugs, like go to a dorm at Columbia, NYU or Fordham or anywhere else in this city. But you don't. We know what this is. So it's like, Bratton, sit down, like sit this one out because you have been part of the problem. And so if we look at the larger scenario that we touched upon, it's like that to me explains what we're seeing uh, and what we probably will continue to see because people are stretched to the limit. They are incredibly stressed out. And I can't say that I I blame them. I mean, if you don't know if you're going to have a roof over your head in the next month or you're going to be sued by your landlord, like that's just... A neighborhood argument can feel like everything because it will feel like at least a solvable problem. Exactly. The Um, world is like, literally the world is coming down on you and here we are. I think my gut is that guns are different and who carries guns and when they're comfortable doing so. That, that may account for some of the shift. I think anyone right now who says that they know exactly why this is going on, starting with the NYPD, is kidding themselves. And like, we don't know if this is an ongoing trend, if this is like an exceptional hot summer after an incredibly weird and off-putting and pressure-filled year. We don't know what happens next with this trend. One thing I think is pretty likely to happen once we get to 2022 and the next mayor is the prospect of having somebody running the NYPD who's not from the NYPD. And we can Enter Tish James and her big report today that came out. Yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> Listen, in my, in my, I can channel my late grandmother in my best black woman Southern voice, bless her heart, which <laughs> does not mean a positive thing. <laughs> When an older black woman from the South says, oh, bless your heart, that means you messed up and you are about to be a lost ball in high weeds. I'm going to keep that in mind. But her projection was 2023 that if any non-NYPD affiliated body was to be formed, it would be formed and like start then. 2023, I think. So Tish James got asked by the governor, the attorney general, to look into the NYPD response to the police brutality protests. Uh, and there was lots of police brutality at the police brutality protests, of course, just to match the theme. And she held three days of public hearings. And I thought those were like a really refreshing breath of fresh air. The NYPD refused to show up until the end. The police unions finally submitted written statements. But all these people, who many of whom were radicalized in the course of these protests because it's, you know, I, I thought this was a problem. I wanted to go out and show my support. And the next thing I know, I'm having my mask pulled down. I'm getting pepper sprayed in the face. I'm getting shoved to the ground. I'm getting kettled. And person after person conveying this that I thought was powerful and like a really great use of a public forum. So she put out her preliminary report today, which has a few good and interesting recommendations, a few off ones, but no force. Behind no tooth. No teeth. No, no teeth. teeth. No the teeth. teeth. You know what it is? It was like, I was like, this is like teetering on a word salad. And are we about to just do committees to nowhere? I mean, can, how many task force can we have to talk about the problem that we know? Like, what is the point? I mean, we can task force ourselves into silence. We see it at every single corporation, university, and government level. It's like, do we really need to have a committee to talk about this? Really? 
Not to mention the NYPD budget, which whatever defund and refund principle it was based on, which it wasn't based on, was so impotent. And most of the cuts, even to the overtime, the great cuts to the overtime, are only happening with a lot of the civilian jobs in the NYPD. Defund and refund wasn't really even allowed to have a gelled, cogent through line before it was ravaged by the mayor. and. You know, you saw no votes coming from not just the right, not just out there in Staten Island, but also from the left. Van Bramer voted no. You know, Corey Johnson said it. I'm not sure why he still let it go, but he said it in the hearing online when he was almost apologizing for it. He said, we should have been able to go through their records now that 50A is gone, go through the records of the police officers and be able to fire the ones that have the worst and most egregious offenses. And I think that needs to come before anything, but it's not going to. So now this talk about toothless, this toothless budget that like cuts here and there, puts school cops just on the DOE's budget, really doesn't do much else except cut some civilian desk jobs and overtime, which they can't possibly police. So... It does nothing. And so you can't even approach the problem of then shifting that money over to NGOs and other neighborhood associations, which comes with its own set of problems when it comes to accountability, or even creating a new kind of hybrid EMT essential worker to deal with homeless and mentally ill. You can't even approach those things yet because the stranglehold that the police have on on this money is absurd, especially in this time when we're cutting every other essential service possible. So the NYPD is just burned. Shea, Commissioner Shea in particular, has just burned the last of their credibility uh, in putting out a series of narratives about why shootings are going up and what happened at the protest that just didn't correspond with reality. To the point where the, the very police-friendly New York Post had some excellent reporters just debunking Assertion after assertion after assertion. Finally, these are fights about money, as Alex was bringing up, that you have this $6 billion budget. It's actually close to a $11 billion budget once you get into benefits and all that, where almost all the money goes to payroll. Uh, You have this real sharp increase in shootings, which is not something we've seen before, and like the causes aren't entirely clear. And You have this tremendous reform push all happening at the same time. And obviously all this with the backdrop of Trump running for re-election and uh, American carnage and all that junk. It's really, really unclear where this goes from here politically or otherwise. Corey Johnson, who backed the supposed $1 billion cut that even he said wasn't really that and was very apologetic, it wasn't more, I think. And should come back on and talk with us about this. But I think he did real political damage to himself by ending up in that weird middle ground where he uh, wants to sort of talk about public safety, but also the absolute need for reform. And this needs to come from the budget, but this is the best we can do. I think there's a lot of established politicians in New York who are going to have a hard time finding their new footing now while we're in this really fraud, interesting moment where it's just not clear what the new terms of engagement are or how how this is going to to work. Then working around all this, 
Finally, is just the prospect of, again, budget collapse and of weird outside candidates emerging and really sort of shaking up the race to see who's going to lead New York when, when, when this is done. I think the big lesson of the de Blasio years is the incredible resilience of the democratic machine and establishment here, and then some doubts about what it's able to accomplish uh, from almost every perspective. If you think we need, we need like profound reform, that's not happening plainly with this guy. If you think we need something to hold the line and wait, things are shifting too quickly and this is going to cause chaos and disaster, which has not happened at this point. Uh, there's some distressing signs. We are not a chaos and, and disaster. Uh, you know, you're not happy. I don't think anyone's happy. And I, I do suspect we're having a real interesting moment of political awakening, starting with the people who take into to the streets, but not just them. It's going to play out in some interesting ways. We might have got a taste of just seeing how well some of these DSA and WFP candidates did in sort of farther out and more interesting precincts than previous. And some of that might be the year and identity, but, but we're going to find out. Uh, I feel much less confident, uh, even politically, about what things are going to look like a year from now than I did a year ago. Well, I think what's interesting, Harry, though, is with Corey, I agree with you about Corey. I mean, he's found himself in somewhat of a political no man's land right now. And I'm curious, you know, we have to remember this the backdrop of ranked choice voting and, and how that's going to affect 2021. But if we find that Corey's inability to make the case to New Yorkers about his leadership, and if he sort of fizzles out, then I'm really curious as to who's going to be fighting for the role of speaker, because we've now, we'll have like an N of three with Quinn, Mark Favorito, and then Johnson. And I'm curious for ambitious politicians, if they'll see the speaker's role as like a kiss of death, if it doesn't work out for Corey. So that's one of the things that I'm watching for, for 2021. But I think it's also, I'm curious as to how these debates right now are going to change how folks campaign. Again, with ranked choice voting, you have to sort of go outside of your natural base or your your borough, but folks will be asking about your decision-making and your leadership during this very moment with COVID, with shootings, with unemployment, with rent destabilization, and sort of asking, I think, much harder questions this time around than many politicians have ever had to answer. Which is exciting. You know, I love an election year. <laughs> One of his James's proposals, which Richie Torres just brought up when he was on with us, interestingly, he was talking about giving the Department of Investigation more control over the NYPD. James proposes taking the Office of the Inspector General for the NYPD out of the Department of Investigation and having it report directly to the mayor. And then one other recent guest note, very disappointed in this, but Maya Wiley, who we asked, are you going to run for mayor? She said, not really ready to talk about that. Our friend Sally Goldenberg reports is very seriously considering a run for mayor and uh, approaching backers and so forth. So it is going to be interesting just to see who's in this field and, you know, shaping this conversation. Wait, Maya Wiley or Sally Goldenberg? (laughs) (laughs) Sally for mayor, I say. Listen, I would totally vote for Sally Goldenberg for mayor. That's like a no-brainer for me. But I think, you know, also like the the racial and gender dynamics of the race will be really interesting because we saw 
remember in 2013, you had someone like Bill Thompson, who was very clearly running as like the Upper East Side candidate and didn't really get traction with Black folks. But if you have multiple Black people running, that's an interesting dynamic. You've got Eric Adams, who may have to distance himself from the NYP. But then again, he's like the most of the law and order type candidates. So if folks are feeling, you know, liberal to a point, they might want a police officer type person like Eric Adams, who will be a little more in lockstep with, say, the NYPD? Or do we go sort of post 9-11 with, you know, the Bloomberg-esque, you know, a billionaire will come in and save us because they understand business. Not like, you know, this thousand-year president that we have, but like a real business person to come in the way Bloomberg made the case, which was, you know, we don't want Goldman Sachs to leave. We don't want any more businesses to leave. Like, I get it. And like, I'll just basically use my like tennis connections to make sure folks stay. So... I don't know. I don't know what angle we want. Or do we want someone who's like super social justice-y who's just like, you know, let's pull the tree up by the root. I Like, I can't call it right now. Stay tuned, (laughs) y'all. Stay tuned. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is brought to you by your co-hosts, Christina Greer and Harry Siegel. This week, our guests were Christina Greer and Harry Siegel and Alex Brooklyn, our executive producer. We normally record at NYU's Silver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, but during quarantine, we are coming to you from the great states of New York and Delaware. As always, thank you very much to Adam Kamara, our producer who mixed and mastered this episode. Wear a mask, be safe. Thanks for listening. Wear a mask. Do it. <laughs>